I control my destiny. I control my fate. I refuse to be a victim. Identify all the things in this world you can't control and let go of them. Quit pissing and moaning about things you can't control. It'll drive you mad. There's only one thing in the universe you can control is yourself. And if we give way to bitterness, if we give way to cynicism or complacency or denial, that's the one thing we can control. Welcome, everybody, once again to Retire.Army, where we dig into retirement journeys and transition journeys from military members from all walks of the military. Today, I am very blessed and honored to have a special guest with me today, uh, Mr. Dave Grossman. Dave is a retired lieutenant colonel from the Army. He retired in 1997-98, around there, and he was a psych professor at West Point, along with being a ranger. And he's written about 12 books, uh, a couple of them being titles On Killing and On Combat. And with that, we're going to dive into the conversation. Thank you, Dave, for being here. My pleasure. You know, and I, I tell everybody up front, you know, you know, it's the, the rank is kind of honorable. You use it on the book titles, use it other places. But truth is, once we get out, you know, uh, don't hang on to that rank. We're all Dave and John and uh, and people keep on trying to hang on to that. Uh, they kind of look a little funny in the long run. You know, just just relax and roll into this new role that we've got and uh, and enjoy it. And and you know, and again, it's it's a nice thing that you can hang on to. Like you know, a a, a judge keeps it for the rest of life. A doctor, after they retire, is still doctor. You know, but uh, to hold it in your hand lightly and uh, and know that once uh, once we retire, we you know the game starts over again, and it, and it's a glorious game. Uh, I tell people life begins at retirement. I remember I uh, enlisted in 1974, and uh, in 1975, I was I was uh, I'd been pulled out by the first sergeant. I was the 82nd Airborne Division, and uh, I was pulled out by the first sergeant to be the unit clerk, kind of radar O'Reilly. There, that back when we had company clerk, battery clerk, and I was their radar O'Reilly, you know, and I, and. Uh, uh, it was an awesome time, but I remember our crusty old first sergeant, you know, this guy was talking about, you know, the kind of, kind of, he was in right at the end of the Korean War era, you know, and, and boy, this guy must have been ancient. Well, you know, he, at, at the most, he was in his late thirties. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, you know, we, we, we think when we're in, we, we've got this model in our mind that, that uh, once you retire, the life is over, you know, you're just, you're just coasting the rest of the way down from there. And the truth is just the opposite. You know, I, I've been out now for, uh, I was in for 24 years. I've been out for over 25 years now. So I've been doing what I'm doing now, longer than I did in the Army. I'm 66 years old, and it's my prayer to do it for another 20 years. I love what I do. I stay in the fight. I'm in really good health, you know. And uh, uh, if, 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 we're, if we're in the, the military, we're above average health. You know, we, we've kept our weight generally under control. We've stayed generally physically fit. Uh, and you know, if, if, if you don't commit suicide and if you don't, uh, if you don't die of a drug overdose, what they call death of despair, uh, the average life expectancy is steadily going up. And by the time we get there, you know, it'll be in the eighties with average luck and we should have above average, uh, we should plan to go to 80 and, uh, and, and that's my plan 66 and I'm shooting for another 20 years. We'll see how it looks once I get there. But there's this this model in your mind, in the military, there because everybody around us, you know, the ancient 
uh, to the old first sergeant. Well, he's, you know, he's at most in his, uh, you know, in his forties, and 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 he's got two thirds of his adult lifespan still in front of him. Uh, after we retire, you know, with with average luck, we got two thirds of our adult lifespan still in front of us, and. Uh, uh, and, and, it, and it's important right up front to wrap your mind around that. You know, the clock starts over again. Everything starts over again. Have a lot of fun. Uh, kind of kind of wink and nod at the people that are still there. You know, hey, call me general. You know, got me general. You know, one guy said, well, well, you know, a lady was telling me she was interviewing some general to him. You know, his, his right-hand guy, what do I call him? Oh, well, you call him general. You know, I'm, okay, right, right. You know, but... Uh, uh, how about how about just Dave and then let's roll with it, you know? But uh, this model right up front that what you did in the military is everything. It's not, you know. It's uh, it's gone, you know. It's it's a nice thing, and uh, uh, one of my favorite books that uh, uh, is called Secrets of Mental Marksmanship. I liked it so much that when it went out of when the publisher stopped publishing it, uh, I started publishing it. I, I self-published a couple of books. And I began to self-publish this book, Secrets of Mental Marksmanship. It says uh, on the cover, uh, 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 best book I've read in 30 years, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman, you know, quotes me on the cover. And, uh, and I wrote the foreword to the book, and I talk about why I think it's so important. It's, it's an application of performance psychology to life and death events, but you can apply it to any aspect of life. You know, if it works in the Olympics, if it works in the Super Bowl, it works in combat, and it also works when you retire. And, uh, and one of the things they talk about is that the world is going to try to pull you down. Uh, and the world doesn't care. You know, you've got to be your own biggest fan. You know, uh, you know, our parents were always our biggest fan, but in the normal cycle of life, our parents will pass. You know? And, uh, and, and our, our spouse knows that we're just human, you know, and uh, our kids figure out that out pretty fast. The grandkids are kind of cool, but they, uh, my, my oldest grandson is in the army now, is army guard, and uh, in a blink of an eye, I'll be a great grandfather. But, but the world's going to try to pull you down. You need to be your own biggest fan. And so we we ended up. Uh, I've got kind of a studio here. It's kind of my my operating room, and we, you know, uh, uh, almost everything here up on the wall uh, was there. Were, were things I received after I got out, the things that I've done, the speaking that I've done, and. Uh, and it's just good to be able to take a breath and look around and say, yeah, you know, we've done some good stuff. The weapons on the wall were all gifts. And we have a thing in my book on combat about the, the giving of a weapon. And, uh, and so it's kind of symbolic. But uh, I think the first step is to, to understand in retirement that uh, you got two-thirds of your adult life still in front of you, number one. Number two, uh, the clock starts over again. You know, and uh, uh, this, this idea that once you get out, you still got to play the game. Now, you know, you, you don't have to, you know, just, just, uh, maybe you, you can call your own shots and take charge yourself, but, but you're on your own, you know, you gotta be your own biggest fan and, uh, you, you gotta support, uh, to the best of your ability, uh, uh, you, your own endeavors. Uh, so, so that's kind of the, the foundational dynamic. Uh, so what I actually want to do is jump into, you mentioned, uh, physical and mental health and how we kind of maintain it through the military and try to maintain it into retirement on that basis. Can you tell me, like, I know it's been a long time since you retired, but if, if you have a morning routine, what does that morning routine look like? And how does that compare to your morning routine when you were still in the service? You know, let's zoom out a little bit on that, John. Uh, uh, I train 
uh, cops in all 50 states by, by most measures. And I'm one of America's leading law enforcement trainers. My, my book on killing came out before I got out of the army. And I'd interviewed World War II vets and Vietnam vets by the hundreds, and uh, and uh, and it, and it was it was a real successful book. It's it's uh, it's now uh, I had over half a million copies sold in English. It's uh, it's translated eight languages. We just sold the Ukrainian rights, and they fast forward this in non combat through Ukraine. We'll talk about that. And uh, I I got out. And I ended up doing an awful lot of work in law enforcement. They were the ones that were in life and death combat before 9-11. You know, the only ones that were in that that daily acid test, you do something stupid, you die. You know, that's combat. Combat is the ultimate unforgiving environment. And cops are in that every day uh, where people are trying to kill them on on a a pretty steady basis. And in 2020, we had an all-time record number of police officers murdered in the line of duty. in in spite of body armor, in spite of medical technology, in spite of all the things to do. Imagine if uh, on the modern battlefield with body armor and tactics and medical technology, imagine if we had a, a record number of U.S. soldiers killed in the line of duty. I mean, that's that's really what 2020 was. It's it's hard to wrap your mind around it, the, the level of violence these guys are facing, and I'm out there every day. So I'm training in all 50 states and training all of our, our, our and I'm still training military that are punching out to the combat zone and, and uh, training units. And, and, and there's, there's one focal point that I think is deserving of a great deal of our time. I've got a book coming out probably late next year called On Sleep, uh, The Tragic Impact of a Global Epidemic of Sleep Deprivation. We're in the middle of this global epidemic of sleep deprivation. And, and the thing to understand is uh, with, with sleep is this biological blind spot. If you're malnourished, if somebody else is malnourished, you know it and they don't. If, if somebody's, uh, you know, if somebody's, uh, you know, being physically abused or sexually abused, you know it and they know it. But if you're sleep deprived, you don't know it and they don't know it unless you ask. Uh, sleep deprivation is this biological blind spot. Our body doesn't know how to make us get enough sleep. And, Probably one of the dumbest things we do in the military is think that there's some kind of badge of honor going without sleep. You know, that somehow you're macho for skipping sleep, you know, and, and any 10-year-old girl's slumber party can go a night without sleep. You know, it's, there's nothing impressive about it. You want to do something impressive, you want to do something hard, go without food for 24 hours. Our, our bodies are actually designed for feast or famine when it comes to food, but our bodies are not designed to go without sleep. And and if you are in nature, you know, if you go a night without sleep, it's it's because you you're fighting for your life, you're being chased, you're being pursued, something's desperately wrong. And you go a night without sleep, your 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 body is doing all kinds of hormonal adaptations to allow you to survive in this this life and death situation that's terribly pathological. But throughout history, we didn't have trouble getting enough sleep. You know, it got dark. There was nothing else to do. We, you know, candles and lanterns were rare and precious commodity. You know, firewood was a rare and precious commodity. Uh, you had a little talking, had a little sex, you rolled over and you went to sleep. And then we invented the electric light bulb and then television and then the video games. You know, I, I, I trained a, an infantry unit that uh, deployed to Iraq and, and they came back and then they were deploying again. And, and they had me come in and brief the unit and, uh, uh, 
the sergeant major told me, he said, on their last deployment, uh, they were in a barracks environment, but they were punching out doing combat patrols, the real world life and death combat patrols in, in the war zone. But they had a semi-barracks environment. They had electricity. So they had video games and they had DVDs, you know, or, or you know, they had, you know, computers and everything you'd want. And he, he said, I, I told my troops, it's lights out 10 o'clock every night. He said, and, and if I catch you up after 10 o'clock, playing your damn video games, I'm going to take your video game. He said a week later, I had a huge closet overflowing with video games. He said, these are good troops, but they cannot not play those games. They're so addictive. They're so immersive. And, and they're intentionally that way. They're, they're, they're intentionally designed to put what's called a flow state. We've all been there. We play the game. Suddenly it's, it's four o'clock in the morning. Got no idea where the last eight hours went. And it's time to wake up and get dressed and go to work. And, and so understand that this, this, this binge watching TV shows, uh, Netflix had said that their corporate policy, their, their competition is sleep. The corporate policy of Netflix is to steal your sleep. And, 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 and that kills people. It just flat kills people. And we'll talk about that. Suicide, traffic deaths, drug overdoses, uh, sleep deprivation is a key factor in all of those things. And we need to know that. Um, we've got we've got social media that's so addictive. You get an endorphin rush every time somebody likes what you do. You're you've got conversation threads going back and forth between all these people. Uh, you know, any whatever your interest is, whatever your passion is, you can find somebody online that agrees with you, and and you can feed on that. And uh, uh, and so what gets lost is is sleep. This global epidemic around the planet, without fail, we see this epidemic of sleep deprivation. And that's the primary danger for all of us, but especially after we retire. Uh, our bodies as adults, we need at least seven hours of sleep a day. Uh, as we get older, we need less sleep. Wrong. As we get older, we get less sleep, but we still need seven hours of sleep a day to sleep healthy. Uh, until my book comes out, a book I recommend with all my heart, one of the most important books you'll ever read, is called Why We Sleep international bestseller, Why We Sleep. And he really nails down the link between sleep deprivation and Alzheimer's, and without a doubt, irrefutable. And the, the, the science, I'm a huge science geek. My favorite website, sciencedaily.com. I check it every day. You know, when I was a kid, the one little science column in the daily newspaper, uh, that was the one I zoomed in on, you know. And, and now I've got a whole newspaper full of science, you know, sciencedaily.com, you know. And, and uh, what's the latest on dark energy and dark matter? You know, what's the latest in the, you know, in epigenetics and what's the latest in sleep? You know, and and so this 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 sleep deprivation is is it what, primarily what it does is it makes you stupid. Sleep deprivation impairs your judgment. After eighteen hours without sleep, your impaired judgment equal to point oh eight legally drunk. After 24 hours without sleep, your impaired judgment equal to 0.10 blood alcohol level uh, above legally drunk. Two nights without sleep, you're, you are psychotic. Uh, most graduates of Ranger School and Sears School can tell you about hallucinations on the third day without sleep. And we have people all around us going days without sleep. You know, they, they, they go to work and they rush home and play the new video game all night long. Then they stagger into work. 
They come home and play the game all night long, and now they're on the third day without sleep. And again, if you've been in ranger school this year's school, you, you probably have your own story about hallucinations on the third day without sleep. You're flat psychotic on that third day without sleep. And we have these people all around us, and, and they don't even know it. They don't know anything. You don't know. They don't know. There's something wrong because it's his biological blind spot. So understand, here's the key. It is a key factor in suicide. I presented to a Department of Defense conference some uh, some great DOD information that showed that a sleep-deprived service member can be up to five times more likely to take their life. When we look at the military jobs, the aviation community has one of, far and away one of the lowest suicide rates. And, and they're a community that mandates sleep, and we mandate crew rest, and we mandate a pilot rest. Uh, not far behind the pilots is our truck drivers. And they have a culture of sleep. Going to be on the road tomorrow. Get some sleep. Ride around. So wherever we see this culture of sleep, aboard ship. It was a weird one. I couldn't make sense out of it. Aboard ship. One of the lowest suicide rate is the corpsman, the medic uh, uh, on ship. You know the, and, and one of the Navy guys said, that's easy. They're not a watch standard. I said, what's that mean? Everybody on ship has these goofy, antiquated, 300, 400-year-old shifts that they work. They're insane. And they're moving from day shift to night shift to day shift to night shift. And they're doing these goofy shifts. And you've got to maintain as much shift, superior, as much shift uh, uh, stability as possible. So he said, you know, here's the corpsman. He, he, does, he, he does office hours. He gets up in the morning. He does PT. He, he's in the office. And then he's got time off. And then he goes to bed. He's the only one that's not doing these goofy shifts that they're doing. So everywhere you look, uh, when you see any kind of sleep management, um, you see, you see a, a tremendous reduction in suicides. So um, the best meta study on suicide says not only is sleep deprivation a key factor in suicide, it's the most remediable factor. If we gave a damn about suicide, this is where we would begin. And, and, and we don't even know it. And the people, you know, Netflix isn't telling you that, oh, by the way, sleep deprivation is one of the key factors in suicide. But we want you to steal. But our corporate policy is to steal your sleep. Uh, and so worldwide, suicides have exploded. Uh, teen suicides, teenagers, 10, 11, 12-year-old, teenage girls' suicide rate has tripled per capita in just the last decade. And so uh, I was presenting to cops and... Uh, uh, at, a, at a conference, and a cop came up and said, uh, he said, I had one of those teenagers. He said she was a good girl. She was an A student. She said, Dad, it, it's embarrassing. You don't have to take my cell phone every night. You can trust me. Family policy. Cell phone goes in the, in the charger and go to bed. She said, it's embarrassing. You can trust me. I said, okay, I'll trust you. Take your cell phone. He said a little while later, she took her life. He said, my little girl took her life. And we never knew the hell she was living in until we looked at the text messages on her cell phone. And there was night after night of ceaseless, relentless, vicious bullying. And you can't just ignore that. We're not wired that way. He said it was heartrending to see her all night long, night after night, trying to defend herself, trying to find somebody to stand up for. He said, I knew immediately my little girl was bullied to death. What I didn't understand until now, she was sleep deprived, tormented, and bullied to death in front of my eyes. And I let it happen.
He said, I can't ignore that text message in the middle of the night. How can we expect our kids to? He said, the one thing I could have done for my little girl was take her cell phone every night, let her turn off all the bad stuff in this world. So who's going to be your mommy? Who's going to make you get this sleep? Folks, you know, again, uh, if you, you've heard, you've probably heard 22 veterans a day take their life. But have you ever stopped and thought veteran and combat veteran are two different things? Everybody ever served in the armed forces is a veteran. And, and most of those people in the 40s and the 50s, the 60s, the early 70s that drafted everybody, Elvis Presley was drafted. Elvis served two years. Elvis was a veteran. If Elvis is still alive and if Elvis killed himself, uh, he'd be one of those 22 veterans a day. Only one or two, every suicide's a tragedy. I've lost a brother and two nephews to suicide. Uh, one of my nephews is a Marine vet of, a, of, of the current war who took his life. But then the other one, the other nephew is 18 years old. The new video game came out. He locked himself in his room with a big pile of snacks and sodas. And on the third day, he killed himself. No, 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 no trauma, nothing in his life, just, just bizarre. But when we start looking up for sleep deprivation, suddenly we spot it. But of those 22 or 17 or whatever the number is, of those veterans who killed themselves, the vast, vast majority are 70, 80, 90-year-old men. And every suicide is a tragedy. And suicide among the elderly is a totally different story. But as a retiree, one of the major threats to your life is suicide. That, that death of despair. And, and, and what the, the, the major factor is sleep deprivation. Your sleep health, you know, we, we, we're driven by the military. You know, we roll out for PT and we, we got formation and we got, and then all of a sudden all that's gone. And, and if you don't get sufficient sleep, if you don't provide sufficient self-care to get that sleep, you are on a path to death. The, the deaths of despair. And so suicide is, is exploded among every age group and every population around the planet. Alcohol and suicide have always been closely related. Now, during the Soviet Union, the Russians strictly limited alcohol. And then the Soviet Union collapsed, kind of a free market, free for all, uh, uh, alcohol for everybody, and the suicide rates exploded. So the, 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 the new Russian Federation, they, they strictly marketed alcohol and they brought the suicide rates down. So the link between suicide and alcohol has always been there, but the most pervasive form of impaired judgment is sleep deprivation. And, and, and here we are being blindsided by this global epidemic of, sleep, of, of suicide, and we don't even know this link between sleep and, and, and suicide, sleep deprivation. So the second major factor is traffic deaths. Decade after decade, we brought traffic deaths down, airbags, seatbelts, medical technology. Now, for the last decade, around the planet, every single nation, every demographic group except the Amish, traffic deaths have exploded. What is the new factor worldwide, this global epidemic of sleep deprivation? There's a reason why airline pilots and truck drivers are required to log enough sleep. And if you're not getting enough sleep, you're, you're taking the stupid pill. And, and, and it's like staggering around the world drunk and you don't know it and other people don't know it. But if you're not getting that sleep, it is a key factor, a irrefutable factor and two causes of death that have exploded, suicide and traffic deaths. It is also a key factor in the third cause of death, opiate overdoses. 
Now, first off, taking drugs is impaired judgment all by itself. But why opiates? Why fentanyl? Why opiates? Why are opiates a drug of choice? Prescription opiates have always been there. Sleep deprivation creates chronic pain. You don't sleep. The tendons and muscles never fully relax. Doc, I heard all the time, give me a pill of things. You don't need a pill. You need more sleep. And you got to knock off the caffeine shortly after lunch to stop you from getting deep cycle sleep. Now, simultaneously, with this global epidemic of sleep deprivation, we have a global epidemic of massive caffeine abuse. These mega doses of caffeine, the, the two pathologies are completely interwoven. And, and, we're, and these mega doses of caffeine, the, the half-life of caffeine in your body is five hours. That means the caffeine you took at 5 p.m. is still at half strength when you go to bed at 10 p.m. And, and, and that's stopping you from getting deep cycle sleep. And that lack of deep cycle sleep creates chronic pain and it's also a key factor in Alzheimer's. Again, you don't get, oh, I'll sleep when I'm dead. We have a decade of Alzheimer's first, you idiot. Uh, and, 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 and that lack of deep cycle sleep, the research is overwhelming, is a key factor in Alzheimer's and dementia, Alzheimer's most common form of dementia. So we've got three major causes of death that have exploded worldwide. We've got, we've got suicides have exploded. We've got traffic deaths have exploded. We've got, we got opiate overdoses. And there's one new factor in the equation. So remember, I said, if, if you don't die of one of the deaths of despair, if you don't commit suicide or traffic deaths or drug overdose, you, your life expectancy is through the roof. But what's causing this? So, so my grandson goes to college. What are the things most likely to kill my grandson? Suicide, traffic deaths, and opiate overdoses. What's the best thing I give my grandson? A good night's sleep. Now, he's been to my class. I made sure he's heard my class. He's heard me teach about this several times. He goes off to college, and, I, and we can talk about sleep hygiene, but the single most important thing you need to know is to sleep in total darkness. Our bodies are designed to sleep in complete darkness. Major study in the sleep lab, totally dark room, bathroom light is on, the door is shut. The light coming under the crack of the bathroom door is enough light to stop your body from producing the melatonin that you need. Now, melatonin is a hormone that allows you to sleep. It is created in the dark. If you don't sleep in the dark, your body can't produce melatonin. And so, you know, I, I, I do a lot of school safety training. And what's killing our kids? What's killing our kids? Suicide, traffic deaths, and drug overdoses. I told them we can walk out the door right now and save the lives of kids starting tomorrow by telling them they've got to get enough sleep and showing them the link and teaching them sleep hygiene. Well, my second grade teacher told us cigarettes kill people. I went home and hid my dad's cigarettes. When your second grade teacher tells you your body is designed to sleep in complete darkness, they will do that. Teacher said, we got to sleep in total darkness. Got to turn the nightlight off right around. So, so this business, uh, but uh, I, I do a lot of work with the fire service. I, I join our nation's largest fire department several times a year, year after year, you know, and, and the fire guys, they always have the bunk room or the bunkhouse. And every, everybody has somebody they call the dark Nazi. And the dark Nazi is a guy that sprays, spray paints the windows black from the inside. You know, but them guys, the dark Nazi is right. The research is there. But my wife frowns on spray painting windows black from the inside. So the, the, the major life hack is a sleep mask. There is a sleep mask on Amazon that has over 80,000 reviews. 
the number two sleep mask has 60,000 reviews. So my grandson goes off to college. I give him several different kinds of sleep masks. I said, find one you like and wear it. And we're on the phone, you know, I'd say, hey, how's college going? Oh, I'm doing pretty good. Huh? Are you getting enough sleep? Yes, sir. Are you wearing your sleep mask? Yes, sir. As a matter of fact, it's getting kind of grody. I went online and ordered another one. So the greatest gift we can give to anybody is a good night's sleep. It starts with you, your family, your grandkids, and the world is trying to steal your sleep. So my dad started smoking in 1941 when he was five years old. He plunked a nickel on the counter. He said he couldn't even look over the counter. Plunked a nickel on the counter at the local general store, bought a pack of Boulder Arm tobacco and rolling paper, started smoking at five years old. Candy rots your teeth, right? Candy rots your teeth. Cigarettes are good for you. They believe that. They believe cigarettes were good for you. And here's why they believe it. You know, here's a, here's a Viceroy ad. As your dentist, I would recommend Viceroy's. You know? But here's a Camel ad. Uh, you know, more doctors smoke camels than any other cigarette. Oh, doctors smoke camels, dentists smoke vice with They're poison. They're all poison. Both of them. So 55 years later, those cigarettes finally killed my dad. But all they wanted to do was sell their product to children. The whole battle of tobacco, decade after decade, was over one thing. Stop selling this stuff to children. And, 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 and they didn't care they were killing kids. They just wanted to sell their product. So we got Netflix, we got the video game industry, we've got, we've got you know, social media. They're never going to say, hey, you've been binge watching shows for the last 24 hours trying to get some sleep now. The video game is never going to say, you've been playing this game for 36 hours, it's time to get some sleep now. They will never do that. So we've got this entire industry that's invested in stealing our sleep. And, and, and the first thing we've got to do is protect ourselves and, and handle that sleep management. So for me, uh, I shoot for nine hours of sleep every night. I like sleep. It's that little vacation at the end of every day. I, I sleep in a little bit on the weekends, not much. Because if you sleep in too much on the weekends, it throws your, your, your cycle off. But extra hour on the weekends, it's kind of gravy. You know, I, I've got an office. I've got two people at work in my office. I lead by example. You know, with office starts at nine. I'm, I'm there at nine, ready to rock and roll. You know, and you got to lead by example. Uh, so it's... Uh, it, it, it's about establishing that sleep cycle. Uh, my PT cycle, I've got some friends that we go biking with most days when I'm home. I'm on the road a lot. Uh, when I present, I often do eight-hour class. I present all day long. I'm on my feet. I never stop moving. Uh, I dynamic. I go here. I go there. I go up. I go down. I go in. And, uh, and, and, and as a presenter, that's your job is to, is to hold the interest of, your, of the people you're talking to and and movement is a critical part of the equation, totally different subject. So, so I, I get my exercise and I, I keep my weight down. I, I, I've got a, you know, a bunch of uh, cops or teachers or whatever, and they go off for lunch break and I tell me, I'll go and have a nice lunch break, but be back on time. Uh, you, you, you deserve to sit down to a nice meal or off the menu, but not today. Today's a good day for buffet or fast food. Be back on time. I tell them, I'm going to sit here over lunch, have a cup of coffee and a cliff bar. I tell them, you know, uh, I still do a lot of military presentation. You stand in front of military honest and much of a gut, they kind of tune you out. Let's see how you look when you're 66, damn it, you know. But the, so the job demands it. I'm pretty good at keeping the weight down. I get a little workout. But really, the critical, critical ingredient is uh, this is, is sleep. It's killing us. It eats us alive. It, it makes us vulnerable to, to major causes of death. Uh, sleep deprivation is a key factor in obesity. The research, you know, we got this global epidemic of obesity. 
what is the new factor? What's going on? Uh, uh, sleep is a key factor in heart disease. So you want to protect yourself from obesity and heart disease. You want to reduce the risk of Alzheimer's. You want to reduce the probability of suicide and traffic deaths and drug overdoses. Oh, it starts with sleep. And you know, uh, one of my life hacks that I teach on sleep is a totally dark room. You know, wear, wear a sleep mask, get online, order one now. It will rock your world. You may not get one more minute of sleep. You'll get quality sleep. And, uh, and one of the things I tell people, you know, my cops, my soldiers, are you in charge of your body, your body in charge of you? Have you got what it takes to suck up a slug and drive on? So the first decision of every morning, do I hit the snooze button and surrender to my body? Am I in charge of my body? Is my body in charge of me? My grandson graduated basic training. You know, he's heard my class. He said, you know, Grandpa, <laughs> on the first morning of basic training, the drill sergeant taught us you can't get straight the hell out of bed when you need to. Now, that's, that's a life lesson every military member knows. Never touch that snooze button. It is truly harmful to your body. It's like you're trying to force your body to fall into deep sucks to sleep in 10 minutes and it can't do it. Uh, you know, so another major life cycle is no more than one drink on the way to bed. Uh, research is there. Two drinks on the way to bed is doing great harm to your sleep. But, but one drink is not that big a deal. Millions of people are using alcohol to put themselves to sleep at night. Please don't do this. So counterproductive. There's so many better ways to do it. You will spend a third of your life asleep. Let it be quality sleep. Go to the sleep lab. Get wired up. You know, and, um, the CPAP, uh, it, 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 for many people, is magic. They put that thing on, and it, it gives that positive overpressure, and they're able to breathe. Uh, I, I tell them a Navy SEAL E9, a Navy SEAL, uh, you know, command master chief. Uh, he, he told me, he said, uh, he said, I had nine years of bad sleep. Everybody in the team complained about my sleep. Finally, about my snoring. Everybody complained about my sleep. Funny, I was ordered to go to the sleep lab. Partway through the night, they woke me up. Master chief, you have sleep apnea. You have a bad. Where's the CPAP machine? Go back to sleep. He said, I went back to sleep and I woke up that next morning after a good night's sleep for the first time in nine years. He said, I cannot describe to you what it felt like. He said, no meal I've ever eaten, no sex I've ever had, nothing in my life has ever been as good as that good night's sleep with that CPAP on after nine years of bad sleep. And that's how people feel about this sleep mask, 80,000 reviews. You know, that's how people feel about that CPAP to get that good night's sleep after all these years of bad sleep and how refreshed and how good they feel. So, so this, this, this is the critical piece of the equation for our wellness. Uh, and, uh, you know, obviously physical fitness, you know, I, I, I think the research is there when it comes to your diet. One of the best things is fasting. Our bodies are designed for feast or famine, 24 hour, 36 hour fast. I, once a week, I try to go, uh, you know, I, I, I go to bed, I sleep all night. It's not hard to not eat when you sleep, you know, then all day long, I eat nothing. And then I go back to bed, I get another night without sleep. So I got two nights and one day cycle without sleep. Uh, and, and I generally manage to fit that in once a week or every other week or something like that. And, you're, and your body's good. And, and there's a piece of self-discipline and self-mastery that, that really is good for you. Again, going without sleep, there's nothing macho about that. But, uh, but overall wellness, uh, it, it comes back down to that one point, uh, sleep management and making sure you get that sleep. If you're not getting that sleep, then, then then go to the sleep lab and get that sleep and make it happen. It's so vital to all of our wellness from this point on. You've got two thirds of your adult life still in front of you when you retire. 
make them rich, full, good years. And the way you do that and, and not get cheated away from those, those decades of life is managing that sleep right up front. I tend to agree on a lot of those points, especially the, the fasting and the, the, the food management as well. I mean, that's a, it's a, it's a topic that goes back and forth. And of course I'm not a doctor. I'm, I don't have a, the credentialing for it, but I do know that um, if you are going to dive into fasting and it's your very, very first time, I would recommend like talking with a nutritionist, talking with your doctor to make sure that they can assist you along the way, because it's something you have to get used to. It's like uh, riding a bike for the very, very first time. Like the first time you get on, you're guaranteed to fall off. Um, but then once you, once you start to manage the, the balance and everything like that, then you can do it repetitively. I do the same. I do fasting quite, quite often, um, sometimes for 48, 36 hours, but usually it's a 16 to 24 hour fast. Um, and it just, it, there's one thing I want to point out about that and it probably goes hand in hand with the sleep is the fasting, what it tends to do to me anyway. And what I've heard many others say is it actually kicks your cognitive, um, resonance into a higher level. So you're able to concentrate better. You're able to focus better. And then if you couple that with a good eight or nine hours of sleep, like that's a, a cocktail for success. Um, along the same lines, I wanted to ask you, as far as sleep is concerned, um, how do you feel about naps? Do you, do you feel that they're useful, helpful? Do you take any naps? I think the research is there. Anything less than a 30 minute nap is a waste of time. Uh, and that, you know, that's why the 10 minute snooze is a waste of time. You threw, you threw that chunk of, of your life away. So uh, when I nap during the day, I don't get nearly as good quality sleep at night. So I rarely nap. But if you do nap, I think you've got to really limit it. And there's a lot of research that one afternoon nap, you know, European countries that do the siesta. Uh, I think if it gets over, if it gets under 30 minutes, it's not much value. Now we've all heard about 20 minute power naps. Uh, and the book, Why We Sleep, the doc says, you know, 25 minutes is the minimum. I think to be on the safe side, shoot for 30 minutes. Almost all the research says five minutes to wind down and five minutes to ramp up. Lock out 30 minutes for a good quality nap. Any less than that's a waste of time. But any more than that, if it gets in the way of a good night's sleep, it's not good. And a lot of people are doing, you know, they've got extensive napping during the day and then they're up during the night. That's a self-inflicted wound. You know, just exercise some stinking discipline. You know, if you're doing these mega naps during the day and you're drowsy during the day and then you can't sleep during the night, that's a self-inflicted wound. There is actually a medical disorder. Uh, that and, and it's another thing, go check with your doc and, and tell them the problem that you're having. But really, uh, it, it's a matter of self-discipline. And we've been in the military. We can do this. We can, we can do this. We can get through the day without a nap. You know, cut off caffeine shortly after lunch. Don't count on caffeine to stop you from getting that nap you know, because that's stopping you from getting deep cycle sleep. Remember the half-life of caffeine in your body is five hours. The caffeine it took at 5 p.m. is still a half strength when you go to bed at 10 p.m. And it's making us have bad quality sleep. Do whatever you need to. Uh, I, and if, if your naps get in the way of, if you're not getting your good night's sleep, then what I would tell you is, is don't nap. Now, if, if a lot of times, you know, you're working a couple of jobs, you're working hard, you're going to naps, the only thing you got, well, make the most out of it. You know, sleep when you can. But we got to have a good steady, we got to have a good steady uh, uh, sleep pattern. And, and we, we've got to have a, a schedule and try to stick to that schedule. 
I'm again, I work with a lot of different people. And one of the dumbest things that they're doing is rotating shifts. Every time we rotate shifts, we give everybody jet lag. We destroy their performance. We take years off their life. We destroy their families. The research is there. We've got to create as much shift stability as possible. The same thing's true with you. You've got to create as much stability in your life as possible. And, that, and that's where sleep management and, 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 and other pieces of the equation come in. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, it makes total sense. I was actually, um, let me tack on a, an additional caveat question. Um, if somebody is, finds himself in a pattern of bad sleep, um, do you think that the possibility of, like say you get five hours of sleep for whatever reason, kids or something happened at home, and it turns into this pattern of five hours sleep, sleep nights. Um, is it possible that a, that a nap, and when I say nap, it's, it's very open to interpretation. So for me personally, I think of a nap as I, I lay down, I do a lot of meditation and that's kind of like my nap is to lay down, meditate. I don't necessarily fall asleep, but I'm in, I'm lowering my heart rate. I'm controlling my breathing. And that's kind of a semi like precursor to sleep, I guess. Um, I'm wondering if that would be something that they could use as a tool to then help offset the, the, the sleepless night that they might've had or experienced the night before. Yeah. Uh, uh, you could be a part of it. And what you really talk about is another whole subject of mindfulness and meditation and, and it's valuable and it's good. Uh, the research is all there. It's, that's good stuff. I think just as a general rule of thumb, we can say, if, you know, if you're not getting your good night's sleep, uh, you know, don't let naps get in the way of good night's sleep. There's, there's things that happen in like a REM sleep generally happens late at the end of a good night's sleep. And you, you really can't recover that REM sleep with naps. We're, we're designed where our bodies are built for that, you know, uh, and, and try to get that good night's sleep. If, if we've gone, you know, if we, if we had to go all night long, get a chance. I mean, you know, we're, you know, we're, we're in the military, right? We're soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marine. Come on. We know get sleep when you can, you know, if you're, if you've got things that are getting in the way of your sleep, you got family emergencies, you've got whatever's going on. Uh, we know to crash when we can. I, uh, I'm on the road over 200 days a year. I'm a, a 2 million miler on Delta million on American United and ready to roll over 2 million on both of those any day now. And I, I, I end up spending a night in an airport, you know, every couple of months, you know, the flight is canceled and I've got a, uh, I've got a thermo rest air mattress that rolls up real tight. I've got a, a Gore-Tex bivy sack. I've got an inflatable pillow and that, and I can just roll out my gear and crash anywhere. And, uh, and so we do that. That's who we are. That's what we do. And, uh, and, and that's a, that's a valuable thing. I, I have, uh, I've got a good doc and he and I are, you know, on this, this thing, we're going to, we're going to both keep going for another 20 years. We're going to keep each other going. And, um, and, uh, I I've got Ambien when I need it. And when I do that sleep in the airport, uh, you know, on that, on that, you know, I, I, that's a night and I know I'm secure. I know that, you know, some airports shut down the secure area and so you got to leave the security and then go back through security again but the ones that get stuck in usually places like chicago and uh other places and i, I find the best places to crash in chicago and uh and reagan and other places reagan airport and uh, uh but I'll, I'll i'll curl up and i'll take that ambient and i know i'll get a good solid night's sleep and i use it very rarely you know i use it when i i use ambient when i do a red eye flight uh, I get on a plane in, in California at, you know, 11 o'clock at night, I'll land in 
in uh, in uh, uh, you know in Atlanta, uh, five or six their time. Uh, I'll take that Ambien to be able to sleep on that plane. But that's the only time I ever use it. And and so there are tools that we can use that, that can help a little bit. Uh, as we get older, the body produces less and less melatonin. So if you if you need any kind of help, start with a little baby dose of melatonin. I mean, just the smallest dose you can find. A little bit goes a long way. And once again, like you said, check with your doc. You know, you you're, you should have a good uh, MD that you're going to see once or twice a year. I, I, my body is my commodity. You know, this is this is what I sell. This is who I am. You know, so twice a year I've got a good doc. We do a good physical and uh, and we touch base on on all this kind of stuff with him. But a little tiny baby dose of melatonin as we get a little older is probably not a bad idea. Uh, and, and the, you know, a couple other things we can do along that line. I want to backtrack a little bit and go back to your story as far as coming in the military. And I'd like to preface it with maybe the setting, the place, the time, the mental headspace you were in when you decided to join the military. What was the trigger that allowed you to join the military? And, and could you could you walk me through that real quickly? Well, you know, uh, I, uh, I went to first grade. We didn't have kindergarten, whatever reason. That was uh, early, early 60s. Uh, my first class and the first grade was first day I went to school. And the teacher had kind of an icebreaker question. And she said, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, oh, I'm going to be a soldier. So that's all I've ever wanted to do. I think it was uh, some movies that I saw when I was little on TV. I think it was my dad, you know, talk about his military time. He'd get together with other people. You know, that generation was all drafted. They served in Korea or they served in World War II, or they served like Elvis Presley for their two years and got out. And they were always talking about their military time and the pictures and friends and uh, and, and the movies. And uh, you know, I, I knew it's what I wanted to do. I had this, this, this gut understanding that that's what I was going to do. So for somebody that all they ever wanted to do was be a soldier, uh, uh, when you get out, you know, it, it kind of, you, you've got to be able to roll into another position. You know, my, my wife says I move from one uniform to another. I just I, I don't I'm 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 comfortable. I'm training military and law enforcement every day. But uh, it was an easy one for me. I uh, I was in uh, the Panhandle of Nebraska going to high school. I finished high school in Kimball, Nebraska. And in December, I, I was I was class of '74. But by December '73, I'd wrapped up all of my requirements, so I basically didn't have to go to school for a semester. I was 17 years old and I lied about my age and worked on a wildcat oil rig. And I worked uh, 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 12 hour shifts, seven days a week in January, February, March, April in the in Nebraska uh, winter on an oil ship, on an oil rig. And it was the most dangerous thing I've ever done. I mean, I, I dodged death on, on several different occasions. So, you know, I, so I, in, in August of 74, I, I, I turned 18 uh, and enlisted and, uh, and uh, became a paratrooper and it was infinitely safer <laughs> than, than working 12 hour shifts on the oil rig. Those guys never heard of OSHA. You know, they don't know how to spell OSHA, let alone, uh, you know, Occupational Safety and Health Act, who it didn't exist as far as a wildcat oil rig in uh, 1974 on the, on the panhandle of Nebraska working 12 hour shifts. But what a lesson I learned on, on being sleep deprived and driving on on using your time and getting sleep appropriately, about working hard and being around men who worked hard and being around men 
who were who were pushing the envelope. I mean, those are oil rig workers in those days, and you know, they, it was it was thirty below and uh, and a howling wind off the prairie, and we're on the oil rig working our tail off, and he didn't want to let down the team. And uh, what 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 an amazing lesson at seventeen years old to to learn. But uh, but I knew I wanted to be a soldier, and uh, and that's uh, that was my ride, and I, I've been I've been really blessed and happy with it from kind of from that point on. Yeah, I totally understand. I mean, I've never worked on a rig, but my brother worked on oil rigs in the Gulf for many years and down in South America. And he told me some of the, some of the stories of, uh, you know, the, what is it, the the roughnecks and the out there. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting, and it's interesting that it's a very kind of direct precursor to military service as well. I mean, you say you you wanted to get in from a very early age. And I think that sounds like a way to really set yourself up for success to go into the military career. You know, when, when I came in, uh, we still had kind of the draft mindset. And it was really easy to get trapped into this. this and, you know, I, I was a punk. I was <laughs> just a punk. Uh, it, it took, you know, it took a year for the Army to smack me into shape. But it, it, it was easy to get stuck in that get over mindset, you know, and I remember I was, I was in for about a year, was married, had a pregnant wife, you know, and the, and the first sergeant sent me to get another haircut. And I remember walking down the company street saying, why am I fighting these guys? I volunteered for this. I, I can play this game. I can win this game. That was like that magic moment. But there was still a lot of that draft mindset of trying to get over. This is goofy. You know, you volunteered for this. You know, you, you you did this willingly. You did it voluntarily. You need to go into it with a mindset that you're going to play the game and you're going to win the game. And there's there's still this, you know, a, a, the idea that you're a lifer. You know, it's still the negative term of a lifer. You know, you're, are you going to be a lifer? You know, oh, wait a minute, you volunteered for this. If you choose to get a second helping, that's your, you know, but why is there something negative to that? Why is that negative? And that that's almost a, a leftover from uh, from the draft era. Well, people were forced to do it and had kind of a negative attitude about it. But I think today we need to go into that saying, this is what I volunteered to do and having this positive mindset to play the game and win the game. And, uh, and I set a goal to go to OCS. Uh, I got two years of night school to, to make that possible and went to OCS, you know, and uh, I was the only OCS grad that taught at West Point at the time I was there. Of all the professors at West Point, a lot of them are not West Point grads, about half. But only one at that point in time that I knew of was an OCS grad. That was kind of fun. And let me skip ahead to your transition out of the military. I'm sure it was quite, quite different from mine. So you came out of the military when I was already in for about two years. I came in 96. So I'd been in for almost two years when you came out of the military. And I know the military was very different then, even compared to today. Um, we didn't have soldier for life. Uh, we had like a cap, I think it was at the time. Um, and I don't know if that was the same case for you, but in that process, that last six months, 12 months before getting out, what was your mindset? What were you thinking about? What were you, how were you planning your transition as far as what you were going to do when you got out, how you're going to spend your time? Did you have that all planned out or did you just kind of play it by ear and, and what's the transition process? Um, do you think it set you up for a success once you left the military? I, I, I've had this this concept that you're responsible for your own success. Uh, you know, thinking that somebody else should be doing that for you was was never on my radar screen. Uh, I uh, 
I had my book on killing came out and it was quite successful. Uh, you know, uh, I was at an academic thing, uh, retirement for this one uh, professor. And uh, it said that his, his academic work has been cited over 200 times in scholarly works. I thought, now that's pretty cool. You know, his work has been cited by others that build on it. You know, how do, how do you figure that? Well, Google Scholar, scholar.google.com, look up any published work and see how many times it's been cited in other works. And my book on filling has been cited over 3,400 times last time I checked, you know, and, and it really was able to make a, a major contribution. And uh, so, so I, I got out and I went to a, a local university and they were ready to give me a fully funded fellowship to finish off my PhD. And, uh, uh, and that was, I got out in December of 97 and by the summer of 97, it was clear that I wouldn't have the time to do that. I had so many speaking opportunities. I had so many people asking me to come and paying me to come. And these are people, um, cops who are out there put the life of the line for us every day. You know, my dad was a retired cop and being of service to cops struck me as being one of my, it's just, just a great endeavor. And so I, uh, uh, I realized this is what it was called to do, you know, and, uh, and, and I, I think it's really important to, to think you've still got a mission and you're still able to make a contribution and see what that is. So anyway, it's, it, it was, uh, it was a good, good transition for me and, uh, it happened naturally. Uh, I thought what was at the heart of combat was the act of killing. And I wrote the book on killing. And most of the people I interviewed were World War II veterans and Vietnam veterans. And it was hard to wrap your mind around. Here's this, you know, this noble, distinguished old World War II veteran. But he was an 18-year-old kid when he was drafted. And that Vietnam vet, they were 18-year-old kids drafted. And, and for them, the whole killing dynamic, my first book, was important. But for a mature individual who's prepared themselves Killing's just not that big a deal. And it's kind of a funny thing to say. People are kind of offended by that. But the, the vast majority of the World War II generation came home. They were stronger for their experience. What was at the heart of combat was actually what became my second book uh, on combat. Uh, I've got a son with nine combat tours. His first combat tour, Spec Ops, was uh, Invasion of Afghanistan. And this is a book I literally wrote for my kid going to his first combat tour. Things like auditory exclusion. How could we have had 500 years of gunpowder combat and not let people know that the shots get muted? Uh, hunters know that. I just finished, it came out just this, uh, just this, this spring, my book on hunting that kind of completes the, the triumvirate of you know, on combat, on killing, and on hunting. You can't understand what combat means to us as humans. You can't understand what killing means to us as humans until you've read the book, uh, until you understand where hunting fits into the equation. You know, if, uh, if you take an evolutionary standpoint, if our species wanted, was in existence for 24 hours, right up until the last six minutes, all we ever did was hunt. It's who we are. It's what we do. Our wellness, the wilderness is part of us and our role in the wilderness, the cycle of life. Uh, I, I'm increasingly convinced that hunting is absolutely essential to wellness and is part of the equation of the holistic you know, future uh, of where we fit in. It's 
it's critical to the ecology. Those hunting licenses and those fees go straight into wilderness management. It's, it's a long story. But uh, uh, so the book's built on each other. And, and as time goes by, I just found out there were more books. So we live in a time where there's room for lots of books. And I encourage everybody to write that book, even if your grandkids the only ones ever read it, you know, write that book. Yeah, I was actually blessed to get a book from my grandfather. He passed away many, many, many years ago and he wrote a small book that never really got into mainstream publication. And there's like five copies of it. And I just happened to get my hands on one of them. It's my most treasured book that I have. Imagine that. Imagine, leave that for your grandchildren. And, you know, and I'll tell you, Grossman's shortcut to writing a book. Uh, my, my first book on killing was a lot of work. It was, it was the, the, the Army sent me to grad school en route to teach at West Point. And, and I did my graduate thesis knowing that uh, it was going to be a book and knowing what the subject was going to be, because this is a subject I always wanted to study. It, it's, it's taboo. Nobody's not, not homicide, but lawful killing. What's it feel like? How do people respond? Uh, it, it, everything about it, what enables violence, you know, it, you know, people point to some horrible murder and that proves that mankind's a killer. Well, it's an outlier. We're a nation of a third of a billion people. That one in a third of a billion that you heard about today is the most just an outlier. Now, you explained to me that 99.999% of our citizens go a lifetime, never kill anybody or even seriously attempt to. Divorce, infidelity, layoff, traffic accidents, and a lifetime of provocation, less than one in a thousand citizens will even seriously attempt to take a life. Explain that. And, and there's this array of psychological, physiological, sociological dynamics that restrain killing. And that's what the book's about and how we can turn it off and how in the military we learn to do it and how, by the way, the video games might be doing the same thing to our kids. You know? So uh, that the, uh, the idea of writing that book uh, and, and evolving maybe into that next book when uh, that uh, what a gift. And, and, and here's Grossman's shortcut for book. This book was a lot of work. It was graduate school. It was years afterwards. But then my presentation had evolved. And we turned my, my military law enforcement presentation. I did a two-day presentation, which is very rare. I added all the bells and whistles and all the sidebars and everything else. We audio taped it and we transcribed it. And it became my second book. Now, there was a lot more work involved above me on that. But, you know, the, the act of writing is just hard work for anybody. But if you can teach a class and you audio tape that class and then you can go to Upwork.com, there's some little old lady in Malaysia with 500 five-star reviews for transcription who will do it for, you know, less than minimum wage here. You know, a little old lady in Malaysia will knock out the transcription for you and break it into sentences and paragraphs and boom, you know, you're done. So, uh, you know, this, uh, uh, tell somebody about it, you know, audio tape your, whatever it is you want your book to be, your story to be, tell the story, uh, maybe have a class, perfect the class, perfect the class, and then, then audio tape that class, get it transcribed and boom, you're halfway home to your book. And, and that's, that's my shortcut to getting that book written. And, and we live in a time when you can just make an e-copy of the book and it can go online. And have friends do a review. Don't don't let it. You know, a book is like a baby born on life support. You got to give it CPR. You know, for the next couple of years, have friends go online. Be shameless. Say, you know, look at the book. If you like it, give me a review. You know, if you don't like it, tell me how to make it better. 
and, uh, uh, and, and, and nurture that thing. And if you got a book or even two, and you got a big batch of nice reviews, and you're out there pushing your book, you know, the Rotary, the Kiwanis, the Lions Club, the Civic Clubs, they're always looking for speakers. I began by just, you know, my wife said, we have a sign out, so we'll speak for food. You know, it, you know, all they did was buy my lunch and I'd speak at the Rotary and Kiwana and Rotary, you know, and of course we'd gone far, far greater than that. But go out there and, and speak about your subject, speak about your passion, transcribe it, turn it into an article, turn it into a book, and uh, and uh, and then it'll go online as an ebook. It costs you virtually nothing. It's available. People like it. It gets it gets traction. You know, print out a few copies. Do print on demand. There's so many options available. When I was a kid, with a thing called books in print, and it was about the size of a phone book, maybe you know three four inches thick. And every book in the English language in print was in that book. Today, it would take a hundred of those books. They put all of the titles that are on Amazon right now. So there, there's room for that book. Write that book. And whatever it is that you do, put that on your resume, the fact that you've written the book. Uh, and it will amplify your contribution. It will amplify. People will look at you totally differently. You walk in the door as an author of a book. You bring a small pile of the books. You sign copies of the books. Uh, it, it just People look at you in a totally different way once that book gets out. And then well, I've got a great publisher right now. I've done my last four books with him. And, and, the, the, uh, and the publisher told me, he said, you know the difference between writers and authors? Writers write books. Authors sell books. They want somebody that's, that's going out there and presenting and selling the book. They want to know how many presentations you've done and, and the podcasts that you've done and how many of this that you've done and that that you've done and, and go out there and, and push that book and sell that concept. And, uh, and, and that's, that's one of the most rewarding things anybody could possibly do. And, and I recommend that to everybody. We've all got the book in us, even if your grandkids, the only ones ever read it, like you, what a great story. I write that book, but it's like having a ticket to the lottery. You know, it, it could be, it, it could be the, the sweepstakes winner. But you can't you can't win if you don't have a ticket. You have to play that game and write that book, and it'll be one of the most satisfying and fulfilling things you ever did. Once the first one gets done, it gets a lot easier, and the process gets easier. Yeah, yeah, I I, I really feel deeply connected to books, as you can maybe tell. I read a ton of books. I haven't ever. I got I got mine back there, sort of, you know, and uh, some of the key ones back there, and all. Yeah, yeah, they. They're, they're a good marker of who we are and what we do. Yeah. 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 I, um, I, I'm very, I'm very interested in what you said about the, your book writing process and how you evolved it into that, uh, taking audio presentations and transcribing them to get at least the core of what you need for the book. And then of course you got to rework it and edit it and review it and edit it. Um, I would even add now, like the technology now allows us to take an audio or a video recording such as this, for example, and get near instant transcriptions. Like I get automatic transcriptions from this that we're recording right now that I can then take and turn into a blog post or turn into whatever I need to turn into. You know, Jerry Brown, I don't know if you know Governor Jerry Brown of California, quite a character. Uh, he was quite a character back in the day, kind of a left-wing radical guy, kind of crazy and goofy, but I was on his radio show uh, back in the day. And one day a book arrives in the mail and it's, it's his book. And he took 
a bunch of his radio shows. He got them transcribed, put them in a book, and poof, he's got this book out. And, and my radio show was one of the ones in his book. I thought, oh, that's really cool. But, you know, here's this guy, you know, who's, who's leveraging his radio show, transcribing, and it, it, I, I never put the pieces together. That's what he did, was he took his podcast, you know, and his equivalent thereof, and uh, and transcribed it and made it a book. Poof, you know, it was painless. And and, and, and pretty cool that, that mine was one of the ones that he wanted to perpetuate. Yeah, yeah it's... It's a, it's an honor both ways, I guess, is, is how it works. Um, I did want to ask you, so you've had a lot of successes in your life, a ton, it seems like, as I read through your bio, as I read through some of your material, watch some of your uh, speaking engagements, and try to do a little bit of research and cram it all into my brain, because it's a ton, it's hours and hours and hours of material. Um, but I did want to ask you, along that whole entire path, was there ever... Um, a failure that maybe sticks out in your mind that at the time that it happened, it was, I say failure, but it could be just like a misstep or it could be just some kind of bad thing that happened that later turned into a success or some kind of it redeemed itself later on in life. Is there anything that sticks out like that? Well, you know, um, one of the things that's happened, just for whatever reason, I, I'm one of our nation's leading law enforcement trainers. I may be the only law enforcement trainer to be post-certified in all 50 states, uh, train every federal agency. And we've got that defund the police movement. And these guys are vicious. Uh, Antifa and defund the police, we get the hate mail from them. And they say, there's an evil guy teaching killology to cops. You know, well, criminology is not about teaching people to be criminal. Killology is not about teaching people to kill. But this, you know, and then there'll be articles in the national media about me that never mentioned my books. You know, what kind of a journalist will write an article about the guy that never mentions his books? And the pandemic was hard. You know, the, the you know, keeping my business going during that time frame was hard. It was a, a low point in my life. And this whole defund the police movement and my cops are reeling, recruiting is down, retention is down. And you know, I've got a, a real, my stuff is very motivational. And, uh, and, you know, why do we keep doing it? You know, well, why do I keep doing it? You know, I, uh, because I love my children, I love my grandchildren, I love my nation, I love my God, you know, and the worse it gets, the harder we fight. And, uh, and that's what love means. If, if, if that's nobody's doing this job for the money, uh, we, you know, we got to ask, why am I doing this? Because I want to build a better nation for my children, because I want to preserve the blessings that we've been, that have been bestowed upon us for my grandchildren, you know, because I want to make a contribution. I want to help lives because uh, I love my country. I love my God. I love my children. And, and in the end, the opposite of the evil is love. Evil is the absence of love, just as darkness is the absence of light. So I'm, I've got this motivational message. My cops need it. Um, uh, I, I often get standing ovations from educators and others. I've, I've got a broad audience. But at the same time, there's this attack in the national media, this flat-out character assassination. You know, an, an article that will, you know, that that misrepresents what you do and never mentions your books and never mentions your scholarship and paints this twisted picture. Uh, yeah, it's been a hard ride. And, you know, it, what, what I teach in my class in, is, you know, resiliency, the bulletproof mind, people who do not get PTSD. And, and one of, the, one of the, the parts of resiliency is understanding that the only thing in the universe you can control is how you choose to respond. Viktor Frankl in a Nazi death camp 
walked out of that death camp without PTSD by all measures. And he said, I realized the only thing universe, those bastards couldn't control was how I choose to respond. So I get these nasty grams and, uh, and, uh, you know, hate mail, going to burn you down and, and murder your family. And, uh, and these, 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 no. and if, what's the only thing I can control is how I choose to respond. So if I let that get to me, they win. You know, you, you don't lose your temper. You give it away. It's the only thing in the world you can control is yourself. The past is done. You've got to let go of the past. Just let it go. It'll eat your life. That's why faith is a component in, uh, in spiritual warfare. Uh, that's why faith is one of the pillars of resiliency. One of my books, a Christian Book Award finalist, is on spiritual combat. It really joins on combat hand in hand and uh, turn it over to a higher power. The future is uncertain. The past is done. You've got to let go of it. The only thing the universe you can control is yourself right now. So I've got some candy, uh, chocolate-covered cherries, a special brand. I get, I get some at Christmas. I get some birthday. I might have one a week, you know. I get one of these nasty grams. I can have a chocolate-covered cherry. I almost look forward to it. So that's actual cognitive uh, behavioral therapy in which you control how you respond to it. And I tell my cops, you know, you, this is the, the things you put up with every day that, you know, people give you the finger, people shouting at you, people abusive to you, but the cops put up with every day is bizarre. And, and I tell them, have, I, I like Tootsie Rolls. Maybe something else will work for you. Put a little bag of Tootsie Rolls in a, in a, in a baggie in, in, the, in the dash of your car. They're individually wrapped. They stay clean. They're good in the heat. They're good in the cold. They remind me of Halloween candy. And you only get to have one when somebody's ugly to you. They give you the finger. They call your name. They're belligerent to you. And, and you, I get to have a Tootsie Roll. And, and putting something in your mouth, the act of salivation, the act of swallowing, will pull you from sympathetic nervous system to parasympathetic nervous system. It'll pull you from fight or flight to feed and breathe. It's a powerful tool. And, and, and I tell them, you know, you don't lose your temper, you give it away. That's easy to say. It ain't so easy to do. But uh, the first step is understanding that if you lose your temper, uh, you lose the game. You know, the, 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 it's, it's all about staying in control. And the first step is understanding it's never appropriate to lose your temper. It's never appropriate to lose control. In the military, we think that military leadership is about screaming at people. And, and it's not. We've all had leaders that screamed at us. We just punish them. I found out early on that when you punish you punish in sorrow. And, uh, and you know, you, you punish in private and you punish in sorrow. You know, what if, it, you know, given a, a troop in Article 15, you know, what if everybody in the unit did this? What would it be like if, if we all did this? You know, I, I don't want to have to do this, but we, we've, got to, we've got to exercise discipline. And, and, and we're, we, we could be in combat any day and your, troop, your, your comrades are dependent on you. And we, you. You can't keep working like this. So you punish in sorrow, not in anger. It's never appropriate to lose your temper. And that, that concept of the, of the quiet professional, the laconic Spartan, the stoic Roman, the inscrutable samurai, the stiff Albert Frit, and today we talk about the quiet professional. They're all different ways of saying the same thing, self-control. So here we are in this attack. Hate, you know, we got these, these, these hit pieces in the national media. What's the only thing I can control? How I choose to respond. So we stay in the fight. And the truth is, the whole defund the police is deflated. Uh, there, there, there's a backlash in the other direction. 
you ride out the tide, you come out the other end, and, and you win. You win by staying in the fight, you know, and uh, uh, so it's been, it's been quite a battle. Um, you know, the business has taken some hits, some engagements have been canceled. Oh, this guy's teaching Bob's to kill. You know, I talked about the parasympathetic backlash and, you know, fight or flight, feed and breed, how there's a biological response to death or to, to seek reproduction and, and comfort and crime victims have intense sex and first responders often have intense sex and it scares them. It's a normal biological response. You know, don't let it, don't let it worry you, you know, uh, but wait until you're off duty. Wait until you're off duty. No, and uh, so they they took a chunk of that out of context. And Grossman says you're going to kill somebody, have great sex, you know. And and, uh, and so it's a it's a battle of somebody actively trying to shut you down. Politicians face that all the time. But if you're a politician, you got a whole body of people that are going to fight back for you. You got a whole body of people. So oh no, that's not what he really said. This is what he said. I'm I'm, I'm out there all by myself. I'm the Lone Ranger. But in the end, my books speak for themselves, the audience, the message. And um, and you come out the other end being a little bit better for having endured this. You know, it, it really made me focus on, on why we keep doing what we do and the motivational aspect of my presentation that's really important. What's the opposite of, of evil is love. Evil is the absence of love, just as darkness is the absence of light. And how do we fight evil with love? You know, our love for our family, our love for our way of life, our love for our nation. These are the things that sustain us. And, and so that, that, that battle has kind of come out the other end. I'm still in the fight. I'm good for another 20 years. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, fighting, you know, and, and this is something to think about. We're all in the military. You know, we're in the military. We're warriors. You know, sailors, soldiers, airmen, Marines. Fighting with us is kind of like wrestling with a pig. Everybody gets dirty. But the pig likes it. So, you know, we, we can kind of embrace that warrior spirit and, uh, and, 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 and work our way through whatever challenges that lie in front of us. Uh, but remember, I, I think in the end, we, we got to have a motivation that's got to be pure. And, and that comes, I, I, I begin and end my presentation that with love. The opposite of fear is love. The Bible says, perfect love casts out fear. Jesus said, greater love is no one than this that they lay down their life for their friends. But there are many ways to lay down your life. There are many ways to lay down your life. And sometimes the greatest love is not to sacrifice your life, but to live a life of sacrifice. And everybody in our military who served a career have lived a life of sacrifice. They're not going to get stinking, filthy American dream rich. They're not going to be a famous celebrity. They have chosen to live a life of sacrifice. And, and, and it is motivated by love. And sometimes the greatest love is not to sacrifice your life, but to live a life of sacrifice. And so you should be enormously proud, rightfully feel this, this, this sense of well-being from your lifetime of service to our nation. And, uh, and you can build on that and take it to the next step. You know, maybe retirement just means bouncing the grandbabies on your knee. But uh, if that's all you can physically do, then, then God bless you. But you've still got two-thirds of your adult lifetime in front of you if you've, uh, if, if you've had average luck. And you need to make it productive if you want to live. You know, you've you got to continue to make a contribution. Or there's a part of our body that says, I'm not needed anymore. And, and you no longer... Or, you know, exist. Maybe your, your purpose for existence is, 
is taking care of the grandkids. That's a beautiful thing. You know, doing Boy Scouts, that's a beautiful thing. You know, volunteer work in community, that's a beautiful thing, but you've got to continue to make that contribution. An old bull elephant follows the herd for a lifetime, defends the herd and walks the perimeter and does the job. And one day the elephant can't keep up with the herd anymore. And they just die. They don't even eat any grass that a real elephant can reap. That they got no purpose anymore, and the elephant rolls over and dies. Well, we're not elephants, you know. We, we, when we no longer are able to keep up with the herd, we can find another way to make that contribution. But it begins with the foundation of knowing that that you've lived a life of sacrifice. And again, Jesus said, "Greater love has no one than this, that they lay down their life for their friends." There's many ways to lay down your life. Let me shift gears a little bit and ask you if you had the opportunity to go back and have a discussion with your 16 year old self, 18 year old self, somewhere in that time frame, 16, 18, could you place us in the place and time where you would be meeting your 16 year old self? And it doesn't necessarily have to be a, a go back and give yourself advice kind of thing. It could be just simply going back, having 30 minutes to meet with your 16 year old self. Where would that occur? And, and what would you, what would you talk about? Well, you know, I, I had somebody ask me with my grandson's EIT graduation and he, another, um, they kind of an orphan. We tend to adopt orphans, another guy that didn't have any family there. And the two of us spent a day, uh, in local city, you know, those two and I, and this other young, young soldier, just a great young kid. Uh, he said, you know, do you have any regrets? You know, would you go back and change anything? I said, no, you know, I, that unit I went to and as a young enlisted person, I, I wouldn't do that any different. And, and the, the night school, the OCS, the books, you know, there's some little nuts and bolts where I made a bad decision and, and hurt somebody that I wish I could go back and do better. But, I, I, they're honestly, they're just not all that much that I go back to that, that younger self, because that would change the way they did what they did. And, and I'm pretty happy with the way it turned out. I had to learn that lesson, you know, that first sergeant sent me back for another haircut. And I had that, you know, it took a year for the army to knock sense into me and say, well, I, I volunteered for this. You know, I, why am I fighting these guys? I, I can, I can win this game. I can play this game. And the truth is, you know, there's not a whole lot in there, um, you go back. I mean, there's, you know, the list of times you look back on with embarrassment, you know, that we made it, you know, that those are little, little in the moment cases where I, I, uh, I, I wish I'd have done something different, but the, the big umbrella, I, I wouldn't change any of it. Uh, or, or it would have turned out different than it is. I'm pretty happy the way it turned out. So it's, it's a funny thing. Uh, when you start looking at it, you know, it's, it's the unit I was with every step of the way that people are with. I wouldn't have changed that. You know, all it would have taken is a little tweak to have been with a different unit and different people, and then it wouldn't have been the same. And, and of course, it would have been glorious and beautiful, too. But I, I'm just really, I can look back on all of it with a, a great degree. You know, I didn't, I didn't do great things in my career. I, I was sincerely surprised to make lieutenant colonel. You know, I, I was pretty... I just, I never did the jobs you're supposed to do. I just had fun doing what I did. I love what I did. I never, you never stopped being an old sergeant and, uh, and uh, it, it just was a good life. You know? So it's a funny, funny answer. To the question is now there's, there's just not much there that I could do. There. Um, so I want to ask you about the meadowing movement, what it is, what it means, and why it's so important to you. Well, 
I mean, there's a lot of candidates out there. I like, I kind of like a lot what Bobby Kennedy is doing, uh, John F. Kennedy or uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. And I'm, I'm, I'm in combo with one of his guys. And I, the zeitgeist is to move away from beating your lawn into submission. You know, for the Arbor Day is when we all plant trees and the idea of planting trees is good. We don't understand that throughout history, Civilization means cutting down every tree. Trees were where the barbarians and savages were. Trees were where the bears were. We'd have one tree in the middle of the field for shade, and I suffer this tree to live to show my dominion over nature. I was at West Point, and uh, there's this big diorama of, of the layout, the interlocking fields of fire, the Fort Putnam and the redoubts and all of it. And, and I said, well, you guys, have, for this layout, you, you took down all the trees to show the fields of fire. He said, no, there were no trees. Every single tree was cut down. He said, trees were firewood. Trees were building material. Trees were where, the, you know, the, where, where bad stuff lived. And civilization was the ax. And civilization cutting down every tree. And we have one tree at the crossroads, you know, and we have one tree in the middle of the field. And you know, we show our dominion over nature. And then, then, you know, we, we said, no, we need trees. Trees are terribly good for us. They're terribly important. There's all kinds of research on how good they are for our wellness and how how the the, the, the research keeps stacking up and revalidating itself that you can measure the effectiveness of a school by the number of trees around it, the, the amount of trees around it. Is it factoring out social economic class, factor out everything else and still predict the success of a school by the number of trees around it. I mean, it's crazy how much we need trees, but we also need meadows. That today we look back and say, why did they cut down every tree? Why did they have to do that? And 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 today, a hundred years from now, why did they have to beat their lawn into submission? Well, why why did they have to have one species chopped down to three inches? You know this 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 astroturf. We were not meant to live on astroturf. We were meant to live in meadows. And I've got my lawn, I'm, I'm casting clover everywhere. I'm letting everything grow. I've got biodiversity. We're not hammering it with the, and this was a real revelation to me. We don't have to beat it into submission. We don't have to, to hammer it with chemicals. And, and I'm not a real big save the planet guy, but if I can do something, it's not a bad thing to do. You know, and I can't control what a nation does or, or, a, or a corporation. I can control my lawn. If you let the grass grow twice as tall, you get, you get double the carbon capture. You mow it half as often, you get you you use half as many fossil fuels and, and, and half as much pollution. You create biodiversity, all kinds of good things are happening. There's clover and then pollinators in there. And uh, and and uh, you know the worst thing we do is hammering with all those chemicals to, you know, the, the, the fertilizers and these chemicals to have just one species grow. So it's so civilization doesn't mean astroturf and a hundred years from nothing they were crazy why, why did they do that it was insane and really back in the day the only way you could have a lawn and we didn't before even push mowers they had people with scythes and swing blades and only somebody very rich with a bunch of uh, a bunch of servants could actually have a lawn and croquet was something that that took a lot of man hours and effort to have this and golf took this vast amount of man hour and effort to have this 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 manicured area that played golf and croquet and that's what the you know the the, the real upper class high class people could do well anyway the the movement is what I call meadowing movement and 
and and I, I've got this little piece of poetry, maybe the only piece of doggerel I've ever written that may be worth anything. Since I, I think that I shall never settle in a lawn as nice as any meadow. So that's it. And I've let my lawn grow out, you know, and and uh, and I've got the clover, and I let it grow, you know, six, uh, you know, let that clover grow about six inches high, and so it can bud and bloom, and and I, and I think that's our future. So here's this candidate. I'm saying this is the future. This is the zeitgeist. You need to ride the zeitgeist. Here's a political. If if your part of your agenda was, you know, biodiversity for Bobby, Longhorns for Kennedy, you know, and say, and, and, and I haven't chosen a candidate yet. There's a whole lot, and the most important is crime. Uh, crime has exploded like we've never seen before. Medical technology is holding down the murder rate. It's actually much, much worse than it looks. Record number of cops murdered in the line of duty. The dominant issue for me is how they're going to handle crime uh, and and take care of my cops out there. But, but you know, I say here's something a politician can grab and run with. You know, just ride the zeitgeist and say, you know, I get to the White House, I'm going to make it clover lawns and we're going to we're going to have a, a, a patch of meadow and, and let it let it have biodiversity. And it's it, it's coming. And uh, and, and it's uh, uh, there's all kinds of trends in that direction. And, and I think you'll see it more and more. And it, it pleases me to kind of be able to get on the front end of that a little bit. Nice. I like that. Thank you for that explanation. Um, last last question, and then I'll, I'll let you get back and be very respectful of your time. If and this is a hypothetical, if you were allotted, say $10 million, and you were free and clear to do anything you wanted with it. I know you're entrenched in many different things, many different organizations, a lot of things going on. Uh, it could be any one of those things. It could be something totally different that maybe something that you completely enjoy that um, really gives you happiness that maybe nobody else knows about. Um, how would you allocate those funds? I, I really wouldn't do much different. Um, I've, I've never, you know, my savings go up and down over time. You know, the pandemic, we tapped into our savings. I've never hit a million, you know, I've gotten close, but never quite hit a million in, in reserves. Uh, but it's always been there to spend on things, you know, relatives and family and people who need help. And, uh, uh it's, it's funny, uh, can't really think of anything that, that I, I want to do. You know, I tell people if I were king, you know, this sleep management is so important. I tell my cops, if I were king, I'd buy you all a Fitbit. And 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 you download the app and you track your sleep and you got to manage your sleep like you manage your money. That's the one place where I tell people if I had money, I would, I'd buy you all a Fitbit. Uh, I think if I had money, I would dedicate it systematically to this global epidemic of sleep deprivation to awareness, I mean, these, these tragic suicides. And again, I, I lost a brother and two nephews to suicide and all three cases, looking back on it, we can see that sleep deprivation was a factor and they didn't know it. Again, if you're sleep deprived, you don't know it, they don't know it. And, and, and you gotta be aware of it. I, I think that in the elementary school, we gotta teach sleep hygiene. I, I, guess, I guess if I wanted to, to, to save lives and make the biggest difference, you know, I tell every class, you know, I've got four hours to teach this class. I've only had 30 minutes. This is what I would be teaching. And that's the sleep management and sleep hygiene. And that, you know, so here's these, these horrible things hammering our civilization. Suicide has exploded. Traffic deaths have exploded. Drug overdoses and especially opiate overdoses have exploded. Uh, Alzheimer's is exploding. You know, heart disease and obesity is exploding. And here's one common denominator. 
that if we did something about it, we start saving lives right now. And I think I would, I would pioneer, I never really thought about this. I would pioneer some kind of an, of a, of a, of a education campaign, an awareness campaign. I was starting to teach in kindergarten that they, you need to sleep in a totally dark room. You know, that's the way we made, you know, my second grade teacher told me cigarettes kill people. I hit my dad's cigarettes, you know, and that, when that elementary teacher tells you something you believe in. So, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd never really thought about it before. That's my passion. Something, some, some way to get the word out about this sleep management, how it's killing us. It, and you, you could, you, you could potentially save your kid from suicide, save your kid from traffic deaths or drug overdoses tomorrow by getting a good night's sleep tonight and doing proper thing with, uh, you know, the, the, you know, turn your, your cell phones to night watch and get the yellow light, turn your computer to night watch and get the yellow light. Uh, my cell phone and computer is turned to that, that yellow night watch all the time. Why, why shouldn't it be like that? I'm just a simple guy. Put it on that all the time. And, and so many things like that we can put out to that you could potentially turn around and save a life tomorrow. Having had three suicides among family and loved ones, very close ones in my own life, uh, the idea that I could turn around and, and make a presentation at a school that would save lives tomorrow. This, this tragic epidemic of suicides, traffic deaths, it, it's just we're being blindsided. And I'm, I'm eager about getting that book out and eager about getting the info out. And I think that's where we could turn around and preserve, you know, we, we're all insane. We're all sleep deprived and we're all making bad decisions and doing bad things. You know, we had a general officer uh, who got in trouble. He had a he's married and he had an affair with this lady writing his biography. And, and he he talked about how he made all of his bad decisions at the end of the day when he was exhausted. He said he knew he had to make all of his decision, all of his planning, all of his hard decisions were made in the morning when he was fresh. He said, not making excuses for myself. Now I did something stupid. I hurt people. And he said, I'm not making excuses for myself, but in retrospect, the one thing I could tell you is, is in the evening is when you're exhausted and when you're tired is when you make these bad decisions. That's, that's, that's a really important life lesson that we can apply across the board is how much sleep deprivation makes us stupid. And, and our whole civilization is crumbling all around us. Crime is exploding, violence exploding, infrastructure and, and antagonism within ourselves. And I think the one factor that could help us all roll back and preserve our civilization will be some kind of a major education campaign revolving around this sleep hygiene and sleep management. Perfect. Um, that was perfect. I want to give you the floor if there's anything that we missed that we didn't discuss. And also if you want to let people know where to find you, anything that you want to point them to as far as a website or how to contact you. Sure. You know, we, we used to be killology.com for 25 years since killology is intentionally provocative and it worked, you know, on killing. The book was kind of intentionally provocative. I had a guy from France send me an email. He said, I, I'm reading the book on killing on a plane. And people look at me like it's child pornography. He said, why'd you have to call it that? You know, <laughs> so it's intentionally provocative. You know, we confront this taboo. And, but um, with the attacks that we faced, we just shifted. We rebranded maneuver warfare, you know, just moved it, shift, shift to the side, let them go on past. And we're GrossmanOnTruth.com, the truth on combat, the truth on killing, the truth on hunting, the truth on spiritual combat. So it's GrossmanOnTruth.com. 
we got our, uh, our our online store there. We've got uh, we've got some links to some good stuff there. At, uh, I mean, you can go to Amazon and get the book if you like, or you can get it signed by me at GrossmanOnTruth.com. And uh, and there's some good stuff in there. You know, my um, I, uh, my when I present, it's almost uh, it's almost uh, uh, performance art because I have two big easels out there, and I write with these big markers. And the one that everybody comes up and grabs and has me sign is the love. But I put John, John 15, 13, greater love is known than this, that they laid on that life for their friends. And I put John 15, 13, and I sign it. You are now the proud owner of a general original signed Grossman. So we sell those on our website. You can get a general original signed Grossman on, on our website. You can get our, our little meme, little card on the giving of a weapon. Anytime you give somebody a, a weapon, you know, we'll kind of show you here. This is... Uh, this is the, all these weapons, you know, the little, the little triad of, uh, of uh, the, the little arc of, of, of weapons up there that, you know, these are all gifts, you know, but the idea of giving of a weapon and what it says and what it implies, we've got a little card that talks about that and it's all on the website. Check it out. I think you find it to be, uh, oops, going everywhere. I think you find it to be, uh, be, uh, uh worth your, worth your time. Grossmanontruth.com. Okay. Thank you very much for your time, sir. I really appreciate it, and uh, very grateful that you that you gave me the opportunity to sit down with you and have a conversation with you. Um, uh, as per usual, all the things that we talk about in this episode will be down in the show notes. Any links, any books, anything that we discussed. Uh, GrossmanOnTruth.com is where you can find Dave, and if you need to skip around, there will be timestamps so that you can. Choose your own adventure and treat it like a an a la carte buffet. Um, but with that, thank you very much, Dave. I appreciate it. And we will see everybody out there in the internet again. And have a great one. Stay safe.